This session, this is what we're going to be dealing with. The unforgivable sin, which when you're talking about the doctrine of sin, that's a major issue that people wrestle through. And uh, so I thought we should address it. So why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? We need his help this morning. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you through your Son, our Mediator, our great High Priest and King, and we come by the Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, our Comforter, our Teacher, our Guide, the very presence of Christ in us. And uh, we come with eager anticipation this morning for all that you have for us, for the opportunity to study your word together now, and also to to hear the word proclaimed and preached in the service, and to sing the word and to pray according to your word together. Uh, we thank you for Advent season and just the time to reflect in greater depth upon the incarnation of Christ, and we are amazed uh, at what you have done in Christ. And we pray for this morning that you would begin our our day of corporate worship and gathering by instructing and teaching our hearts on this, what is a difficult but important issue. We pray for your guidance, pray for the illumination of your spirit, both that we would understand what your word teaches and also have the humility to accept it in our hearts. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so to start with, Are there any sins which God will not forgive? The scripture indicates that there is one sin which mankind can commit that God will not forgive. So we're not used to hearing that, but it is true, and so we need to think about it. What is the unforgivable sin in scripture? Well, actually, Jesus, not only... not. Not even hard-nosed Paul, but Jesus, who was the one who taught about it, and he did so, his teaching on this is recorded in all three Gospels. And so I want to read those passages together. We're going to start with the briefest. So it's just, it's mentioned in one verse in Luke 12.10. So Ben, if you would, would you take that verse, Luke 12.10? Yep. And then Carrie, would you be willing to read Mark 3, 22 through 30? So in Mark's gospel, there's a little bit more in-depth treatment. And then finally, uh, Craig, if you would read Matthew 12, 22 through 32, Matthew gives us the fullest and most extensive treatment. But I want to read all three side by side so that we can kind of take in everything that these that Jesus had to teach upon it as it's recorded in the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So let's start with Luke 12.10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And I just, I just put the verse there because in Luke's Gospel, the verses on either side don't tell you any of the context. It's just, it's just put there. Um, but Mark's Gospel gives us a little bit more of the context, so let's... Then read Mark three, twenty-two through 30. So, Carrie? And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, 
How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man and whatever blasphemies what blasphemies, blasphemies, yeah. blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Thank you. So you can see there a little bit more context. The context being that Jesus had been demonstrating undeniable power and authority even over demons. He was casting out demons and here we see what the scribes and the Pharisees did with that. They accused him rather than acknowledging that he was doing it by the power of the spirit. They accused him of doing it by the power of Satan. And so he interacts with them and he talks about how because they were accusing him of having demonic power and doing these things by demonic power, because of that, so verse 30, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit, because of that, he responded, he said, all sins of, will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but what, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So we know it's directly, that statement is directly in response to what they were accusing him of, right? Implication, they were committing the unforgivable sin, a very sober thing to consider. Okay, Matthew twelve twenty two through 32. This is the most extensive treatment of the subject, so let's listen to what Matthew has to say. Craig, if you would read that. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only about the prince of demons that this man cast out of demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So again, you see, here it's a little bit more explicit. He says in verse 28, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. They were taking that act that Jesus did by the power of the Spirit 
and they were attributing the power of the Spirit to the power of Satan. And so that's why he said, blasphemies against me, the Son of Man, will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Okay, so we sort of looked at all the texts which explicitly say that there is a sin which cannot ever be forgiven. You know, and it makes it very clear, neither in this age or in the age to come. In Mark's gospel, it says it is an eternal sin. So we see all the texts that explicitly talk about an unforgivable sin. And uh, there are other texts that we're going to look at that are related to this, but I think these are the only texts that explicitly talk about a sin which will never be forgiven. Now, I want to make some observations about it here. So, first observation, the Jews had just seen Jesus heal a demon-possessed man. You see it here. He was blind and mute. By the way, isn't it interesting that, this is a side note, demon possession and like sickness and disability are not necessarily separate, right? Sometimes you see in the gospel that that a a person's disability or um, like being mute or blind was connected with demon possession. Very interesting. I'm, I'm not in any way saying that all sickness or disability is connected with demon possession, but just interesting to see that. So he heals this man. Then we see that they accuse him of doing this by the power of Satan. Jesus indicates in verse 28 of our text that he had done it by the Spirit of God. Jesus said that blasphemy against the Spirit, which blasphemy just simply literally means to speak against, to speak against the Spirit of God, will never be forgiven. And the implication is that these Jews had committed the unforgivable sin. And that's especially clear in Mark, because he follows up that teaching by saying, for they were saying... He casts out demons by Beelzebub. So, so th- these are some of the simple observations of the text that just sort of describe what the unforgivable sin is. Any questions about just these texts without getting too far into the weeds as to the unforgivable sin yet? Any questions about the texts themselves? All right. So, what is the unforgivable sin? I want to look at three, there are four main views, I think. I'm sure, I'm sure maybe there are other views, but four main views, right? So anytime you're looking at like a commentary or a theology book and they, they might give you seven or eight different views, but you could kind of whittle it down to the, the most likely ones. Well, the three main views, and I want to, I think these are wrong and I want to refute them or I want to suggest that there are problems with them, such that we should not accept them. View one, the unforgivable sin was the specific act of seeing Jesus perform miracles during his earthly life, knowing that they were of the Spirit, but refusing to acknowledge it and ascribing them to Satan instead. So this was the view of some of the early church fathers, like John Chrysostom, the great Eastern preacher, and Jerome, one of the Latin fathers, one who wrote the Septuagint. So held by some very prominent Christians in church history, but you can see that essentially they're saying the unforgivable sin can't be committed now because 
it was relegated to Jesus' life. What was the unforgivable sin? It was only, it was looking at Jesus' miracles, which he did by the Spirit, really knowing that they were from the Spirit, but refusing to acknowledge it and instead going to great lengths to reject them, even ascribing them to the power of Satan, right? So that specific act was the unforgivable sin, and it's really relegated to history. It can't be committed by anyone today because Jesus is no longer here in the body as he was then doing his miracles. I think the problem with that is the texts say every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Matthew 10, 31. I think that indicates that this is broader than just the people that lived in that day. He seemed to be establishing a general principle that would apply to all people. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. And then he says, but blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So the text seems to broaden this out to establish a principle that was universally true, not just not just relegated to those he was speaking to And so it it seems like it's possible for more than those who observed Jesus' life to commit the unforgivable sin. Second view, the view that the unforgivable sin is a persistent, stubborn unbelief all the way to the end of your life. So this was the view held by St. Augustine, the great Lutheran reformer Melanchthon. So some very prominent men in church history I think the problem with this, in my mind, is that it really is disconnected from the language of the actual text. The text doesn't say that the unforgivable sin is stubborn unbelief all the way to the end of your life. Although, of course, right? It's true. Like, if you refuse to believe in Christ all the way to the end of your life, then it's appointed for man wants to die, and then comes judgment. You have forfeited your opportunity to believe, and you will be judged. But it doesn't, so while that's true, in a sense, like you're not going to be, you're not going to receive forgiveness if you stubbornly persist in unbelief to the end of your life. Yet that doesn't seem to be what the Gospels describe as the unforgivable sin. The description of the unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, not just general unbelief persistent until the end of life. So while this may be true in a sense, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about in the Gospels. Yeah, question. If it's a stubborn, persistent unbelief all the way through the end of your life, People that I have known that are stubborn, persistent all the way through their life are very resistant. You can tell the Holy Spirit's been working on them, and they are very verbal about their um, lack of acceptance and whatnot. So, is that isn't that a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well. Yeah, I think maybe maybe the way to look at it is this. This category of people, those who persist in unbelief all the way to the end of their life, you might think that's a, a large circle, right? Within that larger circle, there could be some who also commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
But all I'm saying is that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit seems to be something more specific than the broader issue of persistent unbelief till the end of life. If that makes sense. So, yes, some who persist in unbelief may have somewhere along the line committed the unforgivable sin. You know, you think of the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day. They did both, right? (laughs) But I guess I'm just saying that they don't seem to me to be equated to one another. You might have some who persist in stubborn unbelief to the end of their life that have never actually committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If that makes sense. Any other questions on that view there? Okay. View three. The unforgivable sin is the act of apostasy, that is, abandoning faith in Christ, committed by a regenerate believer, as described in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Many who hold uh, to a more Arminian view. Many, sorry, that doesn't make sense. Many who hold this view would be in the Arminian camp. So in other words, there's an equation of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit with apostasy. And those who hold this view tend to view it as it can only be committed by a regenerate believer. So in other words, people in this camp who hold this view believe you can lose your salvation. You could be truly saved, born again, and lose your salvation. Why would you think that they would think that you would have to be a regenerate believer to commit the uh, unforgivable sin. Right. Yeah, they, I think they think. Right. 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 So those who hold this view, you know, they believe that you have to have really, truly tasted, experienced the Holy Spirit to then commit the unforgivable sin of rejecting Him. And so that's why they believe you have to, it would be, this would be describing a, a regenerate believer who then turns away from Christ. I mean, on the face of it, the problem with that seems to be how would that fit with the Pharisees and the scribes who those texts actually say did commit unforgivable sin? They clearly were not in this camp. So what they're doing is taking Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, which we'll look at in a second, and sort of saying, well, this is the unforgivable sin. But, man, another thing is, another problem is it, it misinterprets Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 as if that text, as difficult as it is, I don't believe is describing regenerate believers losing their salvation. And it contradicts the teaching of Scripture elsewhere, like the text we're going to look at today where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me, and I will give them eternal life and they will never perish. Right. So a true sheep, one who has heard the gospel and believed, They're never going to be lost. So another problem with this view is it contradicts the rest of the teaching of Scripture. Okay, so those are three views that are out there, commonly held, but I don't think are accurate understandings of the unforgivable sin. Any questions about these three? All right, so what is the unforgivable sin? 
the probably correct view. I'm just acknowledging this is a difficult issue, you know, perhaps perhaps a different view is right, but I think this is the right view. This is a view typical of Protestant Reformed Christians. So I'm going to use three theologians and their, their summaries of it, because I think they just, on the one hand, I think they summarize the teaching of Scripture well, and on the other hand, I just want to want you to see how a variety of different ways that it's articulated by by reformed theologians. First, Wayne Grudem. The unforgivable sin consists of unusually malicious, willful rejection and slander against the Holy Spirit's work, attesting to Christ and attributing that work to Satan. Now, you can see right here that this is closely tied to the actual texts that we looked at, right? He's trying to summarize what those texts say. So he's saying, the unforgivable sin described in those passages that we looked at is an unusually malicious, willful rejection and slander against the Holy Spirit's work, attesting to Christ, attributing that work to Satan instead. He's basically saying, what the scribes and Pharisees did which Jesus said, this is the unforgivable sin. That's what it is. Here's uh, Louis Burkhoff. He says, the unforgivable sin consists in the conscious, malicious, willful rejection and slander against the evidence and conviction of the testimony of the Holy Spirit respecting the grace of God in Christ, attributing it out of hatred and enmity to the prince of darkness. Now, it's just a little more wordy, but... It's basically saying the same thing as Wayne Grudem. There's a, a malicious and stubborn rejection of the witness of the Spirit in the work of Christ and attributing it instead uh, to Satan. And you say, why would they do that? Because of hem- hatred and enmity against him, right? And then a third, Herman Bovink, one of my favorite Reformed theologians, like Louis Burkhoff, he's a, he's a Dutchman, but I thought I'd throw him in there as well. He's a little more concise. He says, The unforgivable sin has to consist in a conscious, deliberate, intentional blasphemy of the clearly recognized and yet hatefully misattributed to the devil revelation of God's grace in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Not the best clarity there. But do you notice also, like, this is not a sin that you can commit on accident. That's important, isn't it? Because sometimes people think, like, oh no, did I commit the unforgivable sin? It's not a sin that, as a believer, you know, when you utter a slanderous curse, but you don't, uh, you know, where you take the name, Lord's name in vain, or, or you say stupid things as a young person in a time of rebellion, that's it's a that's not what the unforgivable sin is talking about. It's talking about knowing clearly this is true, seeing you know the power of the spirit in Christ and yet out of hatred and stubbornness willfully attributing it to Satan instead of the spirit, right? So I think that sort of I think these definitions are helpful. I think they sort of relieve pressure valve that we can at times feel, you know, have you ever well, for instance, 
I was listening to a recent episode of the uh, MacArthur Center podcast, which is a good podcast if you ever listen, if you want to listen to a good podcast. And it's uh, in one of the episodes, this last ep- or one of the recent episodes, it uh, took a little clip from a Q&A session that he had where he interacted with a young lady who was attending the church and she had a question for him. And when she articulated her question, she began to break down in tears. And she said, how can I know that I'm saved when I have such blasphemous thoughts at times, when I've done, committed so many sins? And, you know, so she's wrestling deep in her soul with, you know, the possibility that I could, you know, that I, maybe I've committed sins that God can never forgive, right? And for her, these blasphemous thoughts that pop into her head and things like she's just very tender conscience and struggling with this. And MacArthur skillfully pointed her to the uh, the character of God and the promises of the gospel and handled it well. But I think this is just an example of how we can struggle with this issue, right? And sometimes maybe your own children or maybe you yourself have struggled with this issue. I think these definitions are helpful in that regard. They don't answer all the questions, and we'll, we'll get to some more. But I think it's helpful. All right. Any questions about these definitions? Yeah, Marcus. So these are really specific. Yeah. It's a very specific kind of blasphemy. Uh, whereas in the text, there's just blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Right. And then there is some context added to it. Right. So I'm just thinking one possible view is just it's just in general blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have to be of this particular character where it's hatefully misattributing the works of the Spirit to the devil. Right. And, and I'm not saying that I hold that view. Right. That just seems like that's that seems like, a, like a, an alternative that's not on the previous slide, and it's not exactly this. Right. Yeah, I think um, there are. A few, maybe a couple reasons why people typically don't hold that view. And one would be that the context. So if all you had was Jesus saying any blasphemy against the Holy spirit will not be. And if all you had was that verse, let's say all you had was Luke, right? Then you might conclude that. But when you begin to look at the context, it seems to flesh it out more. That's one. So, so that what he's talking about has more specificity than just any general blasphemy against the spirit. And then I think another is just the practical problems with that, right? That so many people who do blaspheme the spirit in a general way are saved, (laughs) right? Repent and are saved. And so you go, well, you know, and, and we'll get to talk more about this, but I think that too would be a problem is that it, it seems like it's something more specific than that. So that's why I think these theologians have sort of narrowed it down to what you see being happening in that text as as defining what he means specifically by blasphemy, but it's a good it's a good question. It's a good question. Good observation, maybe. Yeah. You know how it's easy to believe in Jesus that loves everything. Yeah. Know, you know, this Jesus, and it's basically a full fabrication of who Jesus is. Um, and then everyone's like, "Well, this a sort of." strong, wrathful Jesus, um, well, that couldn't be Jesus. That would be Satan. Is this what we're talking about? Like, the miss, the false false gospel that's, like, so prevalent with, like, new churches 
right. or like, oh, this is the Jesus we're comfortable with. It's the right. love everyone, right. Jesus accepts everything. That's the Jesus we love because any other Jesus, that would just be false. I mean, is this one because that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's hard to say. It's a good question. Um, I think part of the struggle I have with the unforgivable sin, right, is that. I don't know how you could ever know whether a person has committed it or not. You know, like, I, I, I think it's described in Scripture, and we can kind of know what it is. But when you start saying, well, what about this? Would this be blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? You know, what about this person? It gets more difficult. Like, I don't know what all would fall into this category, you know? And, and so, possibly, someone who says, well, I could never believe in a Jesus who does that. The Jesus I believe in would never do something like that. That's from the devil, right? Like, perhaps that could be. But I struggle. Like, I don't think that we really can make the judgment that a person who says such things has committed a sin that can never be forgiven because, and we'll look at this because I think, you know, there's cases that are problematic, you know, where even in Scripture, Things are said and done by people who turn out then to be saved. So, I don't know. That's a hard question. I think the scripture tells us that there is such a thing as an unforgivable sin. Tells us something of its character. But doesn't really give us license to begin pronouncing that, you know, this falls into that camp and this person has committed that sin. I would be very hesitant to, to say that. So it's a good question because you're drawing upon something that has that sort of flavor. It's just I, I don't know, you know. I guess God bring you right, like later on bring you back. Right, which which then would prove that that wasn't the unforgivable sin because you're forgiven, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's the tough thing. Gwen, or, oh, sorry, sorry, Janelle? Gwen did, she said her hand. Okay, Gwen. Well, it's kind of, Jessica kind of was addressing what was on my mind, but I was just wondering, have you ever known anyone that did this? You know, right. Has anyone known anyone that did this? Well, that's what has been kind of a stumbling block for me as I would read through it. It seems kind of straightforward what it is, but I, I can't imagine it or, or you know. You know, I've, yeah, it's like I've certainly heard, like I remember listening to the debates between Doug Wilson, the Reformed theologian, and Christopher Hitchens, you know, the guy who wrote, what was the name of his book? Um, God is Not Great or something. And, you know, just a vitriolic atheist, right? Very, extremely sharp. But the things that he would say at times, you're like, wow, that's so blasphemous because he's basically ascribing all religion as evil and you know so you're like i don't know but but you know am i willing to say definitively that he has committed the unforgivable sin it's like i I, I don't know i mean i'm not ready to say that i can't look into his heart but i certainly think this provides a warning and a check to us so janelle and then and then marcus i was going to ask if you were at the end of this morning, going to like sum up why this is important. Yeah, I, I will. I will. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, 
No, no. Yeah, yeah. It's good. Well, similarly, it seems like the like a lot of the the, the mystery. Like we don't. There's just a lot that we don't know. And right. If we knew why it was unforgivable, then a lot of we could answer a lot of these questions. Right. But if we don't know why it's unforgivable, like why is it? It's like what's like is, is it pointing to a difference between the character of Christ and the character of the Spirit that blas that this blasphemy is handled differently between the two? Right. It right. It's like it's hinting at something deeper that we may not we just may not have the answer to. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's an element of mystery to it for sure. I, I struggle to. I think there are reasons why it's there, but I. I'm. It's very. You know. <laughs> if you're walking on, you know, ice and you're not sure how thick it is, you, you tiptoe around, you take, tread very carefully. I feel like this is that kind of subject, you know. It's going to be restrained. Yeah, Katrin. Kind of how a lot of times I've thought about the unforgivable and about the Holy Spirit, who says, you know, says he can speak against Christ but not against the Holy Spirit. Kind of reminds me of, you know, like a, a man protecting his wife. You know, that um, hey, you can attack the man, you can attack the son, but you attack the wife who's the weaker vessel, who's the more tender. Right. You know, that they're, they're the stronger reaction towards somebody, you know, and, and right. Trinity has been right. you know, kind of reference to the family. I, I, my own suspicion is that it, because of the fact that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are eternally and equally God not three gods but they each identify with the one divine nature that what's going on here is it's one thing if I could just be crass for a moment here and maybe not as careful as I should it's one thing to say something blasphemous against Jesus right not really just hearing about him it's another thing to see some display of the power of the Spirit testifying to Jesus. Evident power and then reject who Jesus is and speak against him and say, that's just from the devil. Things like that, right? I think there's a degree of magnitude there, of responsibility there that is greater, right? Uh, And so... I think the answer may lie along those lines that the reason the spirit is singled out is precisely because there was this undeniable display of divine power and authority that the spirit was giving and that that was different than just, you know, seeing Jesus walk by and go, I hate that guy. You know, he's like, that was different because you weren't seeing him perform a miracle by the power of the spirit. You just, or you were hearing about him, you know, oh, that rabbi from Galilee, he's so, but you never actually, it'd be another thing if you saw him perform a miracle and go, he's just doing that by Satan, right? So there's a degree of difference there. That's my best guess. Okay. I want to look at two other relevant texts. One is this text in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, because if you look at, the blasphemy or the, the unforgivable sin, a lot of times you'll see this text lumped into the picture. It says this, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away 
to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. You can see why this passage would be lumped in, because it talks about not being able to be restored to repentance. There's a sort of rejecting clear revelation. The power of the Spirit is there. But let's just walk through it. Some observations about it. One, it says, in the case of those who... So, this is not just hypothetical. Apparently, there are people who are described here, right? This is a real group of people. Second, he changes... In the context, he changes from the us and we pronouns, talking about to his Christian readers, to the those and them pronouns. In other words... He's not necessarily saying that his readers were a part of this group. Even though there are warnings, he's talking about a group of people that he's not lumping his Christian readers into it. Third, the language of restored again to repentance after having fallen away indicates that these were people that had once professed faith, but no longer did. So this is what we call apostasy. Okay, This is the most difficult part of the text where it says, it talks about having all the experiences that they had, having been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Here's my interpretation. This is just saying that these people who had once been professed faith, but now have fallen away, they had experienced the work of the spirit but in an outward and a superficial way while they were in the church before they fell away. Now that's where all the controversy is, is could that really be an outward and superficial experience of the Spirit or not? That's my view. Fifth, when it says it is impossible to restore them to repentance, the implication is that God will never grant them repentance. Remember, repentance is a gift. It's a gift of God. So we'd be very careful when we say, well, I'm going to sin now and repent later. Well, how do you know? How do you know where you'll be later in your heart? Repent now. Right? Repentance is a gift of God where he softens our hearts. And he's saying in this case, he will never do that again. He, they will never be restored to repentance so as to be forgiven. Rather, he's going to leave them in a state of unbelief unto their eternal destruction. So here's my conclusion. What Paul is talking about here, certainly we all see it's closely related to, but I don't think this is equivalent to the unforgivable sin, right? The unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but this seems to be something broader. This is what you call apostasy. Having a a professing faith, being in the church where you see and even experience in an outward way the power of the Spirit, but then you fall away. So the unforgivable sin would certainly be in the mix as potentially something that they do, but this seems like something broader, right? Related, but not necessarily equivalent to the unforgivable sin. Okay, let me, let me do, look at this other text real quick and then take some questions. 1 John five sixteen through 17 Here's another text that's often in the mix when we talk about the unforgivable sin. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. 
all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So there's these categories. Let's, let's walk through this. Number one, a sin not leading to death. In this text, it seems that that refers to sins which believers commit, but they don't lead to their eternal destruction because they're forgiven of them through Christ. So you you could pray for a brother or sister committing a sin not leading to death, and God will give them life. God will forgive them, right? And restore them. But there is a sin that leads to death, and John's probably thinking of those that he's talked about multiple times in the book. He describes them as antichrists, right? Those who had denied the truth about Christ and left the church. He describes them in detail in 2.19-23. He's saying, this sin... Rejecting the truth about Christ and leaving the church, if it's persistent in, would lead to death. It will lead to eternal destruction of their soul. And when he says, I do not say that one should pray for that, he's probably just simply saying that, look, don't pray for them like you would a brother in Christ, that he would forgive them for that sin. No, because they have left the church and are denying Christ You wouldn't pray for them in the same way that you would pray for a believer in the church who's committing other kinds of sins. That's how I understand this text. So again, I don't think this refers to the unforgivable sin, although it describes something that is like it, right? So again, there's knowledge of Christ and then rejection of Christ, denying the truth, leaving the church. Remember, they were of us, but they went out from us. Now they're opposed to Christ, and they're and he's saying that their sin will lead to eternal destruction of their soul, unlike you know the sins that we commit in the church and we pray for one another and we could be forgiven. So their sin is more serious. Their sin will lead to the destruction of their soul. So again, it doesn't seem to me to be exactly the same as the unforgivable sin, but describes something related to it. Okay. So those two texts, (laughs) that's my take on it. I I don't believe that they are describing the same thing as the unforgivable sin, but I think that they are describing a similar thing, apostasy, falling away from the faith, and that there is such a a kind of apostasy. There is a, if true apostasy, someone that truly rejects, understands, has seen everything they need to see, to know that it's true, they've been in the church, they've seen the power of God, and they they reject it, and they go back out of the church. There is a category of that in which Jesus says, or the scriptures say, that they, they can never be restored to repentance. And I don't know about you, but again, the questions in your mind, well, have you ever seen, well, I mean, I've seen people that I think have done that. But it's possible that somewhere along the line, God might restore them, and then I go, well, I guess it wasn't that, you know? <laughs> so... Again, it's difficult to say, like, I'm not going to put people into these categories and say, well, this person has done it, but this person in their case hasn't, and make these fine distinctions, you know, as to how far you have to go or what exactly you have to do to fall into this camp. I don't know. I just know this is, the scriptures does describe these things. You know, and getting to your point, Janelle, why does the scripture do this? And why does it tell it if it's not to make a judgment and say, you can never be forgiven or you can be never be restored? Why does it do it? Well, 
I don't know about you, but it's very sobering, right? It helps me to see the seriousness of, of sin, of falling away, of speaking against the Spirit, so that I would, I, I myself, I mean, think about it, in, in Hebrews, he's telling you that so that they won't go that route, right? So it's like a road sign in the way it says, you know, cliff ahead that leads to ruin, do not go this way, right? And you're like, okay, I'm going to go a different way. So it's a check to us that God uses these warnings to keep us from going that route. And it also gives me a, a sober sense that I might call others. You know, don't, don't play with fire. Don't go this way, right? And that I could understand that in some cases uh, this may happen. I, I don't know who. It, I can't put people into that category. But I can know that God is just to do so. So, you know, that gets a little bit to your question, Janelle. I mean, as to why the Lord does this. Warnings, humbling us, sobering us about the seriousness of these matters, not to take them lightly and to warn others. Okay, so any questions about these two texts, the Hebrews text, 1 John 5 text? Yeah, Katrina. I feel like more of a thought talking about it being there and then and then going away. It reminds me of a scripture that I don't do as well. Um, where it says that if they have left us then they were never really of us. Right. Right. So So it's like, not a matter of losing salvation. It's right. a matter of they never had it to begin with. They right. got all of the head knowledge but I've never really ever accepted right. and turned away. And again, who's to say that the Lord won't use that information later in their life to actually convict them? Right. right, so to clarify, I don't believe that either of these texts is describing someone truly regenerate who then loses their salvation. I believe they're describing people who appeared to be saved, made a profession of faith, but in reality were dressed up in sheep's clothing, but their wolfiness was exposed when they took it off and left the church, right? So they never truly were a believer in the first place, and that, and that was exposed when they left. Again, you know, what makes this so difficult is some of you might be thinking of your own children or, or friends that you have and wondering, have they gone this route? Can they never be restored? And because maybe they grew up in the church and I would just say that here's where we need to be so careful. Like, I, you know, it's possible that even some that we love have committed sin leading to death or so rejected the truth that they can never be restored. But we don't know that. So we should never lose hope, you know, that God can bring them back. And, you know, just so I don't, but let's just, Ask this question, what if we think we have committed the unforgivable sin? And let, let me add another one in. What if we think maybe someone else has committed the unforgivable sin? How do we... Some people believe they have committed the unforgivable sin and are crushed by fear that they can never be forgiven. How do we counsel them? And you could add in the related question, what if we're wondering whether someone we love has committed the unforgivable sin? and we're devastated by the thought that they can never be forgiven, how do we think about this? How do we counsel ourselves or others? Well, first let me say, 
We cannot know if a person has committed the unforgivable sin. That's the point, one of the points I've been making, right? I don't think we can ever know that. Some people who seem to be committed to committed it end up being forgiven. The Apostle Paul has got to be the one of the greatest examples of this. In fact, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 14. 1 Timothy 1, 13-14. Just listen to these words. So remember, Paul, those passages in, in the Gospels, it was like the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Who committed the unforgivable sin. Well, Paul was right in the mix, right? I mean, I, I don't think he was, I, I don't know that he was one of those Pharisees who actually was there, but he was part of that general group. He could describe himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. And after the resurrection of Christ and ascension of Christ, he was in the mix persecuting Christians. You think he may have blasphemed Christ and blasphemed the Spirit along the way? Well, I don't know the full extent to what he said or did, but he says in 1 Timothy 1.13, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. You think, well, isn't that what Bovink and Grudem and... And uh, Burkhoff described, <laughs> blasphemer, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So here's my point. If you were to look at the Apostle Paul and you were to compare him to those Pharisees described in those texts who did commit the unforgivable sin, you would notice a lick of difference probably, right? <laughs> but there was a degree of ignorance there with Paul that meant that his blasphemy could be forgiven. I don't know what that was, right? I don't know what the difference was. I just know it was some degree of ignorance that he had, that the Pharisees didn't have, that the other Pharisees didn't have. So when we think of ourselves, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Has someone that we love committed the unforgivable sin and they can never be forgiven? We should look at Paul and say, there's hope. You know, like we just, here he was, an insolent opponent, a violent aggressor against, a blasphemer against the Lord Jesus and, and his work. And yet he received mercy. And, and I think that should give us hope that Some people that might look exactly like those scribes and Pharisees who committed the unforgivable sin, yet they might be forgiven. Because we don't know what's going on in their life and their heart. We don't know all the ins and outs of of how their situation might be different. Also, hardness of heart seems to be part of the unforgivable sin. While repentance is a gift of the Holy Spirit. So if someone is truly repentant, it's because the Spirit has worked in their life, right? And they no longer have that hardness of heart that seems to be part and parcel with the unforgivable sin. So it seems impossible that such a one could have committed a sin that is the unforgivable sin, right? You see what I'm saying? So if you're saying, Lord, forgive me, I repent of my blasphemy. But you're saying, I don't know if I've already, it's too late for me. No, listen, if you're there repenting, 
crying out to God for forgiveness, that's because the Holy Spirit's worked in your heart. And the kind of hardness of heart that would characterize the unforgivable sin is gone. You don't have it, so you have no reason to believe. You can't have committed the unforgivable sin. The Holy Spirit has granted you repentance, right? So, you know, take that young lady I talked about. She's worried about the blasphemous thoughts in her mind, the things that she's said and done, and she's wondering whether she could ever be forgiven of those things. And what would the answer be? Yes, yes, because you are repenting and crying out to the Lord for forgiveness. That's from the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is not going to give you repentance if you have committed the unforgivable sin. And the unforgivable sin seems to be characterized by a persistent, willful hardness of heart and refusal to repent, right? So this that's how I would counsel someone who's worried about that. I'd say, look, I don't think you have committed the unforgivable sin because, look, the Holy Spirit has given you repentance, right? <laughs> and you're seeking forgiveness. That's not what people who have committed the unforgivable sin do. Does that make sense? Hopefully that is comforting. The relevant texts all imply that those who commit the unforgivable sin persist in willful unbelief and defiance of Christ without repentance. So, in other words, it seems to me that hardness of heart and a stubborn unrepentance, even in the face of clear evidence of the Spirit's power, that's part and parcel with the unforgivable sin. And the implication of these texts is that that will then continue on. So this is where I think that Hebrews text is helpful. They will not be renewed to repentance. If you've committed the unforgivable sin, it seems that that state that you're in then will continue. There's no reason to believe that you could commit the unforgivable sin and then have a soft, repentant heart where you genuinely seek forgiveness and you believe now. It seems that that hardness and that stubborn, willful rejection of the truth persists if you've committed the unforgivable sin. So that that's one of the signs that someone has. So that's what I would say. Let me read a couple of quotes to you. One is Wayne Grudem again. He says this. The fact that the unpardonable sin involves such extreme hardness of heart and lack of repentance indicates that those who fear they have committed it yet still have sorrow for sin and in their heart and desire to seek after God certainly do not fall into the category of those who are guilty of it. Another quote from Louis Burkhoff. We may be reasonably sure that those who fear they have committed it and worry about this and desire the prayers of others for them have not committed it. And, and I think that's right. It seems to fit the biblical evidence. It seems to be the clear implication of texts that, like those that we've looked at, as well as the texts in the Gospels. So any questions about that? Does that make sense? All right. Anyone want to follow up with a comment or a question before we close? Yeah, Marcus. All the, the extra information about Paul and his blasphemy, that seems to make the, the, the precise, like the specific definition of the theologians more reasonable. Right. Like, wait, it says that Paul, Paul says he blasphemed, but it never said that he had that, that kind of blasphemy, but that he attributed the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. Right. You don't, like, it never says that he did that, so. Right. Um, when you initially asked the question, I was thinking of this text, but... I didn't want to bring it up because I didn't want to spoil the <laughs> what I was going to say, but I, I think you're right. 
to see the connection there that there is a kind of blasphemy against Christ and against, you know, like Paul, had Paul heard of Jesus' miracles? I'm sure he had, right? I'm sure he had credible evidence. He probably had bought into the same argument. Well, he was just a madman possessed by a demon or something. But somehow there was a difference, right? And the difference must have been so fine that we don't understand it, right? So this is where we have to be so hesitant (laughs) just to throw someone into that camp or to relegate them in our minds to that camp. And I think there's both a check to our pride because with some people we want to, we might want to throw them in that camp. They've committed the unforgivable sin and relegate them to hell. And other people, we don't want them in that camp, but they seem like it, right? So it's both a comfort to a despairing soul and it's a check to our pride and sinful judgmentalism of someone. So Paul, Paul's a, a very... Striking example, yeah, Mark. But it seems like the or atheists who would blaspheme wouldn't have, they wouldn't say like, they would say like, oh, in fact, those miracles never happened. They would never right. think to say, oh, it was actually the devil. Right, the right. And, that, and that's where I'd be hesitant to say that they're committing the unforgivable sin that Jesus is talking about. That's where I'm just inclined to keep the definition pretty restricted, right? Rather than broaden it out to other kinds of blasphemies. Okay, I hope this was helpful to you guys. I know it's a difficult issue, but it's probably one you've thought about. It's probably one you've wrestled with. And hopefully this gives you some direction. Next class, the last class, remember, not next Sunday, which is Christmas Eve, but the following Sunday, New Year's Eve day. We're going to talk about sin and the believer. So there's, that's an issue we have to think of. We've talked about the relation of unbelievers to sin. We talked about total depravity. But now we have to think finally about what's our relationship to sin as believers. And I, I hope it will be helpful to you. So I encourage you, even if you can't be at the class, that you'd you know, download that and listen to it because I think it will, it's an important session. So let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for the teaching of your word, which, Lord, is important that as a check to our pride, as as a warning against playing fast and loose with our faith, as a helpful reminder of the holiness of Christ and the, and the Spirit of God who testifies to him. But also, Lord, that as we think of the the intricacies of the Bible's teaching that we find comfort, reason for hope. And so we just pray that these things would sink into our hearts and really help us to think wisely about this issue and that it would have the effect that you designed for it to have upon our hearts. And we pray this for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen.